Well, we've been in a uh, little mini-series at the beginning of this year um, entitled 2020, um, speaking of our vision, gaining a biblical vision for spiritual growth in the new year. And uh, the overall uh, purpose of this is to help us gain some biblical vision um, for the new year. It's not really meant to be a mission statement or anything like that. It's just to help us grow spiritually in this new year and to keep our lives focused on uh, Christ, um, making him the, the center of our lives. Um, the first two messages we looked at just quickly, um, the first one was climbing out of the spiritual slump, and the first two messages had to deal with us personally. And the first one talked about how we could find ourselves in a kind of a lull, a spiritual slump, and uh, not even know it sometimes. And what can shake us out of that? What can rattle us out of that? It's uh, the grace of God. And, and we looked at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. And we looked at several things. And you can go back and get the outline or look, listen to it online or the church app. Um, but we wanted, wanted to make sure that we're out of that spiritual slump for the new year. And then secondly, we, we talked about not just climbing out of the spiritual slump, but climbing into your spiritual calling. In other words, understanding out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 14, what God has called us to do. And we looked at four commands there for uh, not just the servant of God, as Paul was talking to Timothy, but for any Christian, really. And they were, uh, just quickly, they were, the first one was free from, flee from evil, and he said that in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And we looked at several things that we're to flee from as believers, uh, just to mention them, false teaching, love of money, sexual sin, idolatry, youthful lusts. And then we said, not only are we supposed to flee from some things, it's hard, hard to say, but we're to follow after other things, follow after that which is good. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness in verse 11. And so as Christians, we're to be fleeing from the world, following after God and his righteousness. And then thirdly, quickly, we said that we can, we're called to fight for some things, fight for truth. We summarized it, and he says there in verse 12, fight the good, faith of, good fight of faith. And so we, we talked about what that meant. It meant to be in agony over something. The faith is really the word of God, everything that makes up our Christianity. And so we're to fight for those things. We're not just to be mamby-pamby Christians that just appease everybody that we run into and say, well, you know, they're not going to agree with me, so I'm not going to speak up. No, we're, we're to fight for the truth of God uh, through our words and even through the way we live our lives. And then fourthly, we said that we're called to be faithful to some things, and, and mainly the Word of God uh, in summary. He says there in verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 6, keep the commandment, and the commandment is um, the Word of God, and the idea of keeping it is to guard it, proclaim it, and protect it. And at the end of that section in, Paul, in Ephesians, Paul says that, you know what, um, you're going to be held accountable, first of all, by God the Father and also by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was the first couple weeks of this series. And now thirdly, we want to kind of switch uh, from an individual mindset, a personal mindset, to more of a corporate mindset. And there's just two more messages in this series, but the next message will deal with the corporate nature of our uh, family, specifically parents and children. I think there's, there's 
uh, no greater time in our world when parents need to be equipped to um, be focused on Christ. Um, so I, I entitled this message today, uh, Don't, Don't Be Focused on the Family. <laughs> and that's kind of a play on words because we all know the program, Focused on the Family. And it's done a lot of good. But at the same time, I think a lot of people in the church today, that's all they focus on is their family. And what happens? It becomes a family-focused family. More specifically, a child-centered family. And you say, well, shouldn't, our, shouldn't we focus on our family? Isn't that important? Sure, it's important. But I think that we want to look at it in a biblical way. I don't think we're called to be a, a family-focused um, family. I think we're called to be a God-centered, a God-focused family. Um, I think I read this before. Law, laws concerning food and drink, household principles, and lamentations of the father. And this was written um, by a dad to his uh, group of kids. He had quite a few kids. And here's what he wrote. These are laws when at the table. He said, if you're seated in your high chair or in a chair such as a greater person might use, keep your legs and your feet below you as they were. Neither raise your knees nor place your feet upon the table, for that is an abomination to me. Yes, even when you have an interesting bandage to show, your feet upon the table are an abomination and worthy of rebuke. Drink your milk as it is given to you. Neither use on it any utensils, nor fork, nor knife, nor spoon, for that is not what they are for. If you dip your blocks in the milk and lick it off, you will be sent away. (laughs) When you chew your food, keep your mouth closed until you have swallowed. And do not open it to show your brother or sister that which is within. I say to you, do not do so, even if your brother or sister has done the same to you. Eat your food only. Do not eat that which is not your food. Neither seize the table between your jaws, nor use the raiment of the table to wipe your lips. I say again to you, do not touch it, but leave it as it is. And though the pieces of broccoli are very like small trees, do not stand them upright to make a forest, because we do not do that. That is why. Sit, just as I have told you, and do not lean on one side or the other, nor slide down until you are nearly slid away. Heed me, for if you sit like that, your hair will go into the syrup. And now behold, even as I have said, it has come to pass. And this article that this guy wrote goes on and on and on about laws for your family. Now that may seem a little bit extreme, um, a little humorous, little profound, but really it's meant to show you how easy it is as parents to lose focus on what's truly important, to lose focus. 
One of the greatest fears, I believe, among Christian parents is that their children will leave their house thinking that one of the greatest sins in the world, the cardinal sin in life, is something like slouching in the chair at dinner table. But even worse is for our children to leave our households and have no clear idea of what our family is all about. Uh, Because we live in difficult times, would you agree? We live in a a crazy society, times in which we're driven by the outside influences here and there. Even Christian parents find themselves distracted by all the stuff that's out there in families. And a lot of families, frankly, they find themselves adrift, wondering exactly what they're called to, to focus on. What should be the foundation of our family? What is the foundation of life? Well, there's a passage that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, you can turn there, where God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through Paul, gave us a clear focus, a clear foundation upon which our family should be built upon. And I hope that this keeps things uh, kind of focused for you in the new year if you're a parent here today. If you're not a parent, maybe you're a grandparent. And if you're not a grandparent, maybe you know somebody who's a parent. So in one way or another, I pray that this message will apply to everyone who's here. And so I want to read these, these couple verses uh, for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. But this is really uh, um, Paul's instruction to us as Christian families. And I pray that even though you've probably read this a million times, I pray that you will not miss the truth that is here for us. He writes, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger or wrath, but leave, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, you've more than likely read those verses time and time again. It's a very brief description by the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Ephesus about what family life within the Christian home should look like. Now, remember, in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, Paul had just dealt with what? He dealt with the subject of marriage. And so, usually where there's marriage, generally, children to some degree follow after that. And so, he he gets done dealing with marriage in chapter 5, and now he comes to chapter 6 in Ephesians chapter 6, and he lays down this brief foundation for everything that goes on in our families. And we're just going to focus on a couple verses here. But the main point in these first four short verses is that God does not want our families to be self-centered. He doesn't want our families even to be family-centered, for that matter. And I think that we've bought into that, that it's all about the kids. It's all about our marriage. It's all about this. It's all about that. And that's why I titled the message this morning, Don't Focus on the Family. Um, God's primary goal for our families is that it be God-centered, that it be God-centered, that they find their center, their focus, their meaning, their purpose, Where? In God himself, in his word. Well, how does that happen, though? How does that happen? Uh, If you're a a believer sitting here this morning, you have a desire, more than likely, 
to have your own life centered on Christ. But now we look at the family. And I pray that if you're a believer here and you have a family, which you do, um, that you want your family to be focused on Christ. But how do you get from a me-centered family, a self-centered family, a family-centered family, to what we would call a Christ-centered family? How do you get from point A to point B? Well, Paul gives us here very basically two basic commands. It's quick. And uh, I guarantee you, if you follow these commands in your family, in your life, that our families will be God-centered. That our families will be focused not on ourselves and our kids, but on God. So I want us to look at these. They're they're basically pretty profound. You can see them there in your outline. Two basic commands for a God-centered family, a God-focused family. First of all, he addresses children. You say, well, you should have been preaching this when the kids were up here. I thought about that, but I thought, well, I can't discount the teachers and the preparation they made. But anyway, you can let, let them listen to the message later or recite it to them yourself. Um, in verses 1 to 3, we see the first command is given to children. It's given to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, it's interesting. Paul assumed that when this letter to the church at Ephesus was read aloud in their congregation, because that's what they would do. They would gather together as the church and, oh, hey, we got a letter from Paul. Oh, great. Well, what's it say? And somebody, one of the elders would stand up and they would read the letter to the congregation. Isn't it interesting that Paul's addressing children in their congregation? What does that mean? That means that children and parents worship together back in that time. And we do some of that here for the music, but... For the most part, a lot of churches, it's like you're, you're entering two different worlds on a Sunday morning. You know, you come into church and your kids go that way and you go that way. <laughs> and maybe in a couple hours you see each other again. Now, I get it for parents. Hey, we need that break right, once in a while, right? That's kind of good. Um, but on the other hand, back in Paul's time, they would worship together as a family. And so he addresses these first three verses in Ephesians chapter 6 to the kids. That's pretty incredible. And he addresses the parents later, but right here he addresses the kids. He addresses them directly. And we need to constantly, I think, encourage and ensure that our children from a young age are part of our worship service corporately. That's why we have them in here, at least for the music part of our worship. Because I think it's important to see, for them to see their parents worshiping Christ. And some parents say, well, I can't worship but my kids are here. Well, then you need to teach your kids what it means to worship God and to be respectful and to be reverent before God. Um, that's, that's the bottom line. And so he tells the kids here two things. He says, first of all, his instruction comes in two parts. He says, first of all, what? Children, obey your parents. Obey your parents. Um, Who's he talking to? Who are these kids he's talking to? Well, children basically, in the original language, it refers to children in the home. It refers to children in the home. If your child has left the home, well, then he's not worried about them. You know, it's not that they're not your children anymore, but, you know, when we studied chapter 5, we saw in verse 31, when we looked at it, I think it was last uh, summer, uh, dealing with marriage, 
that when men and women leave their home in that context of marriage, they leave the home and immediately they enter what? Into a different relationship with their parents. They're no longer under their parents' authority. Why? Because they've set up their own household. They have their own wife, their own children. They've moved out of the house. Well, that's not who Paul is addressing here. He's addressing children who live in the home, children who are there physically in the church service. And so after you're married, your relationship, or at least it should, with your parents changes radically. Um, There's a real danger when it doesn't change. I've seen that played out, and usually it's not good. Young couple gets married, and, you know, they end up living at home, not able to break away and do what the Bible says. Now, practically, there's some things that go along with that. I mean, financially, it's probably a lot easier, clearly. But at the same time, it's not so much the idea of physically removing yourself, but the idea that you're setting up your own uh, kind of umbrella of authority. And so he's talking here to children who are living at home with their parents. It doesn't, by the way, matter what age they are, which is kind of interesting. He's not saying they have to be little kids. You know, you could be in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, whatever, living at home. And you know what? If, if that's the case, you're under your parents' authority. It doesn't matter whether you're an adult or not. That's what he's, he's saying. Well, what's his, his, his command here? His command, as long as that child is in the home, under the authority of the parents, eating their food, sleeping under their roof... They have a responsibility to what? What's it say? Obey. Obey. Hupakuo is the original uh, Greek language here, and it means to hear under. Kuo, acoustics. To hear under. In other words, to listen with um, your, your ears perked up, attentiveness. And then not only listen, but respond positively to what is heard. That's what it means to obey. It's a compound word, to hear under. It's used five other places in, in, in verse 5 of slaves. He says, slaves, be, obedience to the, be obedient to those who are your masters. Same word. Now, relax, Dad. That doesn't mean you make your kids your slaves. <laughs> you know, that's not what we're saying. The word obey simply means to willingly follow the directives of someone whom God has placed in authority over you. And if you have a child, you as the parent, God has placed directly over them in authority. You're not called to be their friend. You're called to be their authority figure. And when you lose sight of that, we see what happens. (laughs) It's not good. When you're willing, unwilling to stand up for what's right, whether they like it or not, Whether they're crying or not or throwing a fit, it's irrelevant. As a parent, you have to understand that you are an authority figure. And as such, you yield um, or you have much authority. And so here in the context, it's referring to parents in Ephesians 6, this word to obey, that we are to obey our parents. It's so important, by the way, this idea of children obeying their parents. 
This is so important that even our Lord, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, guess where he grew up? He grew up where? In a human family. Okay? Now, he didn't have, I mean, he had a mom and dad. I mean, it was a little different because he was God. <laughs> but he grew up in a human family. And remember, he was 100% God, 100% human. And uh, he who had much to teach his parents, I mean, you're talking about little Jesus, God himself, right? Um, instead, what did he do? Did he tell Mary and Joe, hey, you need to sit down, I'm God, I'm going to tell you how to do this. You know, no. What did he do? He submitted himself, he obeyed his parents, the Bible tells us. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, after the incident in the temple, temple, you remember Jesus went down and taught, and they, they thought they lost the Son of God. <laughs> Where's he at? Um, and Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth, and it says there in verse 51, he continued <clears throat> in subjection to them. The God who created Mary and Joseph was putting himself willingly in subjection to them. See, God doesn't take disobedience when it comes to our parents lightly. Um, Look over at Romans. Quickly turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You remember when we went through uh, Romans, we... We, we focused on this. Romans chapter 1, if you look around verse 18, it tells us here, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely the, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. All you have to do is look around and realize there's something greater than us. Unless you're given to believe the world's answer for what we see around us. But he says they're without excuse. And then in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became, (coughs) claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immoral God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creepy things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And then it says this in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then it 
goes on and it gives us a list of things. Look at this list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boaster, boastful, inventors of evil. Oh, look at what we have here. And by the way, disobedient to parents. Who would have thought something like that would be sandwiched in with all these gross and hideous sins? Verse 31, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. God takes disobedience to parents very, very seriously. And sometimes as parents, we need to convey that to our children. It breaks my heart when I see Christian kids in Christian families with Christian parents being rude or obnoxious to their parents. Now, I get it. They're kids, and they're going to be kids. That's okay. But that's no excuse. They need to be held accountable for their own good. They need to understand that, you know what, when you're disobedient to me as your parent, you're incurring God's judgment upon your life. And I think that needs to be shared with children at a very young age. You know, we're quick to share with our children the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. But when it comes to something like this, well, we can't tell our kids that. Yeah, you can. They should understand it. I mean, who would have thought disobedient to parents would be in there? It's, it's recognized, basically, the disobedience to parents is part of the reason that the wrath of God will fall upon humanity. You even see it in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 21. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. In verse 18, it says, If any man has a stubborn or rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, when, and when they chasten him, he will not even listen to them. Isn't that our society? How many times have you had parents trying to chastise their children and the kids just don't listen? They don't even respond. They're just openly rude and obnoxious. It says, then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So he's obviously old enough to be those things. Then all the men of the city shall, this is hard to hear. Stone him to death, so that you shall remove the evil from your midst. And all of Israel will hear of it, and what? It says, and fear. And fear. Now, I get it today in our culture. You know, if you spank your kid, you're called, called into question. I understand that. But that's part of what we talked about last week. Sometimes you have to fight for certain things. I'm not telling you to take your disobedient kid out in the backyard and stone him to death. Please hear me out. I'm trying to show you how serious a rebellious heart is before a holy God. And if we're not willing as parents to point that out to our kids, guess what? We're not doing them any favors. God does not take disobedience to parents lightly. Now, when you look back at the command in Ephesians 6, 
Um, don't misunderstand and think that, that all Paul is calling for us to do is just do what your parents say. Just do it. Don't question it. Just do it. Because I think we're adult enough in the room here today to understand that merely doing what your parents say is not obedience. Do you understand that? Just because you do what your parents say, that may not equal obedience. Because outside of that external conformity to whatever the parent told the child to do, okay, and they do it, what's going on in their heart? What's going on in their mind? Are they doing it from a willing heart? That's true obedience. Romans chapter 6 verse 17 says that true obedience always comes from the heart. Romans 6, 17, it always comes from the heart. So obedience means as often as we we tell our children, it means doing what your parents say with three things involved. First of all, without delay. You don't question it. Without arguing or excuses. And then thirdly, you do it with a willing heart. You do it with a whole heart. Anything less than that, my friends, is not true obedience. It's a facade. It's somebody who's scheming to, to do what mommy and daddy say, but in their heart, they're going to go do what they want to do anyway. And guess what? If you don't get a hold of that real quick, when your kid's 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and so forth, guess what? You have a child that, well, when they're in your presence, you think they're a little angel. But they don't respect you. They don't have any fear for you because they don't have any respect for God and they don't have any fear for God. And so what do they do when they leave your presence? When they're done playing the little dog and pony show, here's what mom and dad expects me to do, so here's what I'll do. I'll I'll please them. They walk away, and then they live a life that's totally the opposite of what you're seeing. See, we, we don't just want our kids to just merely obey at our command. We want them to do it out of a willing heart. And that takes time. Because our hearts are what? Rebellious. They're deceitful. All of us need to be hear this same message even in our own Christian lives because it applies to us directly. Are we doing what God calls us to do just to obey him? Or are we doing it because we know it's the right thing to do and God gives us a desire to serve him and to, to obey him? Are we doing it out of a willing heart? See, if any of those ingredients doing it without delay, doing it without arguing or excuses, and doing it with your whole heart, if any of those are missing, then I would say your child is not obeying you. You have not willingly, from the heart, submitted your will to the will of your parents. That's what obedience here is speaking of. And parents, let me tell you quickly that you should accept nothing less than full obedience from your children. Because that's the kind of obedience that God commands. As a youth pastor, I used to get so tired of parents making excuses for their kids. And see, you're to set a pattern in your own life. You're to set an example for your kids. What exactly is it that children are to obey? Well, if you turn over to Colossians chapter 3, Paul makes it very plain. This isn't rocket science. This is like parenting 101. 
But somehow we get it, we get it wrong <laughs> over and over and over again. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul points this out to the church at Colossae. He says this, children, be obedient to your parents. What's he say? In all things. For this is well and pleasing to the Lord. In all things. It's comprehensive. In all things means just that. All things. There's nothing left out of this command. From the clothes your child wears to the length of their hair to what time they go to bed at night and what food they eat. Nothing is exempt from the command of God in all things. That's very clear. You say, well, aren't there some exceptions? There's two. Two exceptions. You find them in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. There's two exceptions. We don't really have time to go over these, but I'll just mention them. There's two biblical reasons. And by the way, this idea of obedience, we're also called to obey those in authority over us, including the government. And it has the same scriptural mentality and and idea That you know what, if God has placed someone over us in authority, it doesn't matter whether it's a slave and a master, whether it's a citizen in their government, whether it's a parent or the child and the parent. In Acts chapter 4, it points out two biblical reasons not to obey the authority that's over us. So children are called to obey their parents in all things except two things. If these are the cases, then they have an exception. This pertains to parents, it pertains to children, it pertains to employees. It doesn't matter what authority is over us, the government, whatever. There's two reasons to disobey the authority that God places over us. First of all, if that authority commands us to do something that God forbids. If that authority commands us to do something that God forbids. And then secondly, if that authority commands us not to do something that God requires. Those are the two exceptions. Now, with younger children, these probably aren't going to come up, obviously, because as Christian parents, you want the best for your children. You're not going to command them to do something that God forbids, and you're not going to command them not to do something that God requires. See, these are the only two reasons to obey authority or to disobey authority. Uh, to disobey authority or to disobey our parents. The Bible is very clear. It says we have to obey our parents in everything. Now, you've probably heard that a lot. But notice what he says in the next part here in Ephesians. He says, children, obey your parents. And then he says, in the Lord. In the Lord. It's the same thing with with slaves. Uh, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 5, down there it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. And then he ends the verse with what? As unto Christ. As unto Christ. See, if you don't hear anything but this, hear this, and stress this with your children. Your children are not to obey you as parents 
because you're bigger than they are. You're not, they're not necessarily called to obey you because maybe you're a little older than they are. Or you have superior authority. Or maybe because you have the keys to the car or the cash that they need. <laughs> you're to obey your parents as part of your Christian discipleship to Christ. That's what you have to get your children to understand. They have to understand that your relationship, their relationship to their parent presents you with a very practical way in which you can carry out your obedience to the Lord. Ask your young person this. Do you constantly, as a manner of life, do what your parents tell you to do? Do you do everything They tell you to do without delay, without arguing, without excuses, and with your whole heart. If not, then guess what? They're not obeying you as parents. And more importantly than you, guess what? They're not obeying Christ. In fact, the pattern of disobedience to your parents leads... Back to Romans 1. You will live under the wrath of God. You are not a believer. And someday you will suffer his ultimate wrath. Now some young people will say, I've heard this a lot. Well, my parents are unreasonable. Well, that's true. There are some parents that are very unreasonable. How do you think you ended up in that family with unreasonable parents? Who do you think put you there? God. (laughs) Don't you think he knows your parents are unreasonable? Sure. He understands that. Did he ask you before he put you in that family? Oh, you know, do you want to go, you don't want these parents or do you want these parents? No, he didn't ask you. Why? Because he doesn't have to ask you. He already knows what's best for you. So he gave you unreasonable parents. Deal with it. Do what's right before God. See, this isn't about your parents, young person. This is about you and God. We're called to obey our parents. Not because of the character of our parents. But because of your God and your Lord. I mean, God is more than capable of dealing with your parents. And he will. He'll hold them accountable for how they act around you, for how they treat you. But he expects you to obey him by obeying them. Well, that's the first thing, obey your parents. Secondly, he says, honor your parents. There's a second part to this command that Paul points out here to these kids. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is of the fifth commandment that's quoted out of Exodus chapter 20. So here Paul is saying, okay, if you're not hearing me on the obedience part, you better hear me now because I'm quoting the Old Testament. I'm bringing out the big guns now, Paul says. You must honor your father and your mother. The word honor there is a very interesting word. It has a lot of different meanings. But some of them are this. The word simply means to count as valuable, to revere, to respect, to ascribe worth to. See, if your children are not obeying you, 
they don't count you as valuable. They're not revering you. They're not respecting you. And they don't ascribe worth to you as their parent. So something needs to change. And this command deals not so much with your external behavior, although it does deal with that. It deals with your attitude toward your parent. You're to honor them. You're to count them as valuable. You're to revere them, respect them, ascribe worth to them. Why? Because God gave them to you as your parents. How do you do that? Well, a couple things here, and this is quick, but a couple things. First of all, obey them as long as you're in their home. You see that in verse 1. Obey them as long as you're in their home. That's a way to honor them. That's a way to respect them. Number two, always show respect in how you speak to them. Always show respect in how you speak to them. Both in the words you choose to use and, let me say this, the tone you use. You know, we know that as married couples, right? I mean, how many times have you had a discussion with your wife or your husband, you know, and your response to whatever they say is, you know, I don't care for your tone. They may be saying the right things, but they're saying it with the wrong tone. Number three, speak, don't speak evil of your parents or curse them. And you say, well, who would do that? <laughs> a lot of people do that. Exodus 21, 17 makes it very clear that in God's mind, there ought to be a harsh penalty. And some days there will be for those children who speak evil of their parents and curse them. Fourth, don't strike them or hit them. I was watching a, a cop show the other night on TV. And the police were called out, and guess what? It was um, a domestic violence thing. You think, oh, was it between a, a couple? No, it was between a son and his mother. And literally, he just beat her up. She had to go to the hospital. That happens all the time. Don't strike. Don't hit them. Don't injure them in any way. Fifthly, listen to their counsel. This is consistent with what God tells us in the book of Proverbs, especially Proverbs 1. If you're going to respect and honor your parents, then it means you sit up and you listen when they're talking to you. You take their counsel for what it's worth. Then the sixth thing here is care for them as they age. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 3, Paul's talking to the church taking care of widows here. And he says this in verse 4, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first, in other words, be the ones to take care. That is, the children or the grandchildren must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. That's a way to honor your parents, even your grandparents, is to care for them. And then it says in verse 8 of that same text, 1 Timothy chapter 5, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that pertains to the immediate family under your roof, obviously. The way Paul uses it here in the context was if you refuse to care for your aging parents or your grandparents, um, it's as if you've denied the faith. Who would do such a thing? That's how we honor our parents. 
Now, look back at Ephesians 6. Here's a couple motivations for you in Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. First of all, he says you ought to honor your parents because of your relationship with the Lord. He says, in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. Because of your walk with Christ, you're claiming to be a Christian, you live in a Christian family, you should honor your parents. Secondly, he says, because it's in God's design. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, for this is right. For this is right. According to who? According to God. According to his word. Obedience to parents corresponds to God's standard. It's the way God has designed the world. It's right. And when it doesn't happen, there's something wrong. Thirdly, he says, because it's God's command. We should take that very seriously. It's the fifth commandment, as I said. And then fourthly, you should do it because God has a promise attached to it. You ought to do it because God promises that the, he attaches the promise simply that it says there, so that it may be well with you, <laughs> that you may live long on the earth. Ken's dad must have treated his parents good. <laughs> I mean, he's almost 100 years old, right? See, it's interesting. As Paul quotes the fifth commandment here, he omits the last phrase from Exodus 20, which says, the land which the Lord your God gives you, which had a particular reference to the promised land, the land of Israel. It's uh, the land of Canaan uh, where the Israelites lived. Paul, under the inspiration, lifts the promise out of its kind of Israelite background, and he makes it generally applicable to anybody who obeys and honors their parents. I mean, that's just the Spirit of God working through the Apostle Paul, that they'll have long life. Now, that's not an ironclad guarantee. Um, Charles Hodge writes this, This is a revelation of a general purpose of God in the usual course of his providence. It's kind of like when it says, you know, if you train up a child in the way that he go, not, won't depart from it. Well, you know, that's not a promise. That's not an ironclad promise. That's a general principle. More than not, they're not going to depart from it. They're going to come back to that path of spirituality that you laid down for them. So this is a, a great promise. Children, obey and honor your parents. If you want a God-centered family, children must and have to be taught to obey and honor their parents. And not for the reason that it, we think. Not because it makes the family vacations go a little easier. Uh, not because di- time around the dinner table will be more pleasant. Um, but because they understand their parents are in the place of God to them. That's what they need to understand. And the response to their parents is, in fact, a response of their heart to their greater authority, God himself. Uh, That's very true. Well, secondly, he not only addresses the the children here, but in verse 4, he finally gets around to addressing the parents. Um, He gives a second command, Paul does, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you want a God-centered family, 
And the command here is to the fathers. He says in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, why does he single out fathers here? You know, this isn't Father's Day. I'm not picking on you guys, but it's here. That's what he says. He doesn't say mothers. He says fathers. Why is it that God chooses to single out dads? Um, And this goes back to our previous studies dealing with marriage and the family over the summer back in in chapter 5, if you remember. God has made us as men in the home to be the head of the home. Whether you like it or not, that's the way it is. That's God's design. Now, you can usurp that. You can let your wife be the head of the home if you want. It's not going to work out. It's not going to be good because you're not following God's Ideal. That doesn't mean that the, the wife is, you know, barefoot and pregnant and doing dishes all the time. We're not talking about that, okay? But spiritually, over your home, the man is to be the head of the home in authority. That's what the Bible says. Men are ultimately responsible for everything that happens in their homes. I wish more men would understand this. You know, just because you're off working 8, 12, 15 hours a day doesn't give you a pass. I'm sorry, it doesn't. I'm, I'm being honest with you. I wouldn't be doing the text justice if I said anything else. And yet, most men in the church today think, well, I'm the breadwinner. I go off to, to work and do all this stuff, and then I come home, and, and then, you know, everything might better be in order. Better have, you know, fresh sheets on the bed and dinner on the table, and the kids might, well... I get it, the, the, the mother is, is the homemaker, she's the one that's ultimately carrying out a lot of these practical things, but if you come home and your home is a mess after being at work for 12 hours, guess who's responsible? You, as the father. And you better make some changes, and you better make them quick, because ultimately it's going to come right back in your lap, and we somehow forget that. Because a lot of us are hard workers. We do work hard and we do go out and and bring home the bacon and and do what we need to do. But we fail to remember that we are the head of the wife. And therefore, we're also the head of the child. Just because the mother spends more time maybe with the children or whatever, you're still responsible. Men are ultimately responsible for everything that happens in their homes. He's put us in the position of authority and responsibility. I mean, we understand that when we go to our secular jobs, don't we? If you manage a group of people, you understand that in in the food chain, you're responsible for these people. If your group of 10 or 15 people are taking lunch every two minutes and they're not getting any work done, guess what? Your boss is not going to go to those 10 or 15 people. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, hey, what's going on with your team? Why isn't there any production here? You can't say, well, they're just lazy. I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Why? Because you're responsible. Same way. Same thing applies in the home. He's put us as men in authority and responsibility. So men, if verse 4 isn't happening in your house, if verse 4 is violated some way in your household, guess what? God holds you ultimately responsible for it. So we better roll up our sleeves, figure out what's wrong, and fix it. What does that mean? That might mean you reaching out. That might mean you stepping back and saying, wow, I don't know how things got this way. And being honest and being humble about it. 
and not prideful and being willing to reach out and say, I, I need some help here. I need some advice. I need some counsel, biblical counsel, how we can correct this problem. That's what we're here for. That's what the, the family of God is for, to support each other in this way. So we're not going to get away with it. Um, but let me say this. The verse is directed especially to fathers, but it also applies to you mothers as well. <laughs> it does. Um, just in case you thought you'd get away with something here. Um, the Greek word translated fathers, it's accurately translated sometimes parents. I mean, here he's addressing the head of the home. Um, but in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it's translated parents. So it encompasses both. So notice that when God starts to talk to us about our responsibilities in the family, he doesn't talk about our authority at all. That's not what he's talking about here. I mean, sometimes we like to strut around as parents, yeah, I'm the king of the castle, I'm the, you know. Um, God doesn't start there. That's not the point. He starts instead with our responsibility, not our authority. So many times I hear parents saying, well, my, my, my kids don't respect me. They don't do what Scripture says. They don't revere me. Well, why? Because the parents have broken down in their responsibility to the child somewhere. His command to fathers as well as mothers is, first of all, he says, do not provoke your children to anger or wrath. Do not provoke. It has, it has the idea of an ongoing pattern or, or treatment that continues. It gradually builds up a deep-seated anger and resentment that boils over in hostile, outward hostility. Um, don't provoke your children to wrath or to anger. I mean, can you imagine sitting in the first century church and hearing that expression for the first time? Because this would have been absolutely revolutionary to their hearing. Because you have to put yourself back in that time. Under the, the, the Roman government, which they were back then, they were under their authority, the Romans gave virtually full and absolute power to the authority over their children. I mean, a father could imprison his son for no good reason. And no one would question him. He could scourge his son. Under Roman law, he could put his son in chains in the front porch with a dunce hat on. He could force him to work out in the fields. He could even legally put him to death. That's how much authority the father yielded under the Roman government. But God, in the church, tells us to be careful how you treat your children. Now, the people hearing this would have probably thought, wow, this is new. Even to the point of respecting their feelings. Don't consistently provoke them to anger. Why is the emphasis on that? 
See, every human being bears the imprint of the image of God, right? That's what the Bible says. So we have to take all other human beings, even our own children, seriously. That little child who doesn't know as much as you do, that little child who needs life experience, that little child who needs to be taught and be directed, who sometimes needs discipline, that child is made in the image of God, and God has given him to you as your responsibility. And you better treat him with respect. Because God will not take that lightly if you do, if you don't treat them with respect. And you see this in our culture today. I've seen parents just publicly malign their children to the point where the kid's hysterical. That's not discipline. They misunderstand entirely that their children are made in the image of God. And in a sick way, they're, they're using their authority over that smaller individual to appease something within themselves. I don't necessarily, it's wise to publicly humiliate your children. I'm not saying you shouldn't discipline them, but it has a place, has a time. I've been with parents. It just tickles my heart. Because be out, whatever, with their kids. And kids are going to be kids, right? I mean, they're rambunctious. Do whatever. But you know what? One look from the mom or one look from the dad, they know, okay. (laughs) The fun has ended. They better straighten up. And they do. That's always a blessing to see that. But unfortunately, I've seen the other side of it too. I've seen the other side of it where the father goes from telling the child not to do something, and the child continues their behavior, and the parent continues to tell them not to do it. And obviously, it's not being honored. The parent's not being respected. The parent's not being obeyed. The child continues to, with the bad behavior. And nothing happens. They just keep on telling them not to do it. Somehow, magically, by the 20th time, the child's going to go, okay, I'll listen this time. No. Kids don't work that way. You have to provide some discipline. You have to provide some teaching along with your parenting. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, Father, Paul tells fathers there. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. In other words, you don't just beat them down over and over again. That word exasperate means to stir up, and it's used both positively and negatively in the New Testament. Paul would often say, I want to stir up within you some good action or a good attitude. See, that's the word that we're focused on. He says here, fathers, don't stir up your children. It's an interesting use of this Greek word in secular literature and time. It's it's used to describe a bellows 
blowing wind on a spark and igniting it into a full flame. I mean, you know your kids better than anybody. You know what ticks them off. You know how to pull their string. God says don't do that. By your attitude, by your actions, by your words, don't incite your children into a full flame of anger. Now, as Christian parents, you don't want to exasperate and anger your children. What exactly do we do that encourages that? Um, how do we know what, what causes that? What builds up resentment and anger in your children? How do you anger your children? Well, there's a couple different ways. The very top of the list, I would say this, inconsistent discipline. Inconsistent discipline. You want to anger your child? Just don't provide consistent discipline. Because you're tired or maybe you had a long day, let them do whatever they want for a period of time. And then the next day, when they're doing whatever they want, you lose your mind. That angers your children. There's no consistency. Treat those offenses differently from day to day or from child to child. That's exasperating to your children. I mean, think about it. If you were at work if you never knew what kind of a reaction was coming, if you never knew what was acceptable and what wasn't. That's why we have HR, right? It tells us what we can do and what we can't do. But think if it was just whatever. But you were getting in trouble all the time, and and one day you'd get in trouble for saying one thing, but then the next day you'd get in trouble for not saying that thing. That would be very exasperating. Some parents parent that way. You can only imagine what their kids are going through. Secondly, unreasonable or arbitrary commands. I mean, as parents, a lot of times we have a tendency, our first response is simply no. No. The answer is no. Whatever the question is, no. No, no, no. Thirdly, a constant nagging or criticizing. Always focusing on the children's, child's problems. Pointing out to them time and time again how they're not measuring up to your standard. That's exasperating. Number four, never complimenting or encouraging your child. I know my brother, my, my dad died when I was young, when I was seven. But my, my one brother, Paul, tells me he was a very hard individual. You could never do enough. I said, what do you mean? Because I was just a little tyke. I had <laughs> hardly any remembrance of him. He goes, for example, he goes, I, my brother Paul was really good at sports. And he... Football, Little League, whatever the sport was, he was using Little League as an example. 
He goes, I remember I, you know, had a really good game. I don't know what it was through a no-hitter or pitched, you know, hit a couple home runs, whatever it was. And on the ride home, I was feeling pretty good. And Dad looked at me and said, you know, in that third inning, you should have hit that ball. Just negative. Just like, (laughs) that caused a child to shut down. Be encouraging to your children for the right reasons. Don't build up a false, you know, the other side of that is the parents that say, little Johnny, you can do whatever you want to do in life. Well, no, little Johnny can't. That's a wrong message to give to your child. I used to deal with this all the times as a youth pastor. And parents would scratch their head. Well, I want to be positive. My, my kid can do whatever he... Why don't you teach him this? Little Johnny, why don't you do whatever God wants you to do? That's a lot bigger thing to live for than what he wants to do. Because sometimes little Johnny is never going to make the basketball team or the baseball team or the, the football team. And so... Little Johnny grows up thinking he's going to be an NFL player, and he's 4'9", and it's not going to happen. And you're not doing him any good by telling him, oh, yeah, you can do it. I'm not saying don't be encouraging your kids, but it has reason, right? Overprotection is another one. I think we're all guilty of this, overprotection. Um, Overprotection will build anger and frustration in your children. It's good to let your children fail while they're living in your home. So you can be there to pick up the pieces with them. Sixthly, favoritism. Remember Jacob to Joseph? You want to make your child angry, just show favoritism to one of them. Seventhly, failure to distinguish between appropriate childish behavior and wrong or sinful behavior. Um... I've seen it where parents blow up at their child because they knocked over a <laughs> glass of a milk at the table. You know, they, they, they fail to understand that this little guy's growing at three inches a day. What do you expect? He can't even control his own limbs, let alone sit still for two seconds. And yet, because he spilled the milk, you think that that's some intolerable gross sin. Understand the difference between childish behavior and wrong or sinful behavior. Number eight, an unhealthy focus on achievement rather than faithfulness in character. Unhealthy focus on achievement rather than faithfulness in character. There are so many children within the churches today that are getting straight A's because they're driven by their parents to do just that. And that's a wonderful thing. But you know what? Their character stinks. They're willing to compromise to get those straight A's and whatever it takes because just to please mommy and daddy, it doesn't matter if they lie, cheat, or steal. There's fathers who push their sons to excel in sports because maybe they never had the opportunity to excel in sports themselves. We've all been at games, whether it be literally or football. You see the fathers and mothers yelling from the sideline at this little boy who can barely... (laughs) Pick up the bat. Acting as if it's the World Series on the line or something. I mean, I'm all about competition. I don't think everybody should get the trophy. But let's keep things real. Let's keep things in perspective. Because you don't want to anger 
your child by having an unhealthy focus on achievement. Ninth thing, the last, is, is just neglect. I mean, you look at the, the life of David and you see how David set out a course for Absalom, a course of, of neglect. He reaped what he sowed. You have to be reminded of that. Physical, verbal abuse, that goes without saying. Well, God has given us the tools to, as parents, as fathers, to, to help our children, and they're simply the last two things on your outline. First of all, discipline. Discipline. Second Timothy 3.16 says that we should train our children in righteousness. Training in righteousness. That's what that means. We're to bring our children up in a systematic way, training them systematically. It's not willy-nilly. It's not one thing's right today, and yet tomorrow it's wrong because I'm in a different mood. Training here means training by means of rules and regulations, rewards, and when necessary, guess what? Punishment. I mean, God laid down clear rules for his people in God's law, and he laid down corresponding rewards if those commandments were kept and punishments if they were broken. We need to be brought back to that fundamental principle of discipline in our homes. And then the second word here is instruction. It means training by means of spoken word, whether it's teaching, writing, encouragement. I was listening to one interview with an NFL player the other day, and it was one of the 49ers, the, the, the big end or whatever he is, and he was saying how his dad constantly wrote him all these letters encouraging him all through his college years. And he said, they mean so much, I still get them out and I read them. <laughs> um, things like that, you, you have to invest in your children. Um, we need to be willing to do that. Proverbs is essentially a book of instruction. It lays down warnings. He teaches, he explains, he corrects the, the child's thinking, he admonishes them. He appeals to their will to do the right thing. See, that's instruction. That's what we're called to do. I think that as parents, we have a, a tough go at it. But it says there, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It's not your own take on things. It's of the Lord. It's from his word. You know, there's a lot of resources, but if you're a parent here today, I'd really encourage you to read Ted, Drip's, Trip, Ted Tripp's book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's an awesome book on parenting that will get you the resources you need to help you raise your children so that you don't just focus on your own family and raise a self-centered family, but you have a family that is focused on God and his word and his principles. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that as we embrace this new year, Lord, as we look previously about messages that apply to us personally and now more corporately, the family, specifically children and parents. And next time, we'll close out our series in a couple weeks um, with a message focusing on the church. What's our role to be in the church? 
So, Lord, we pray today that if there's any here today who's yet to hear um, and understand the gospel, that you would apply these words to them, Father. Um, Lord, if, if, if there are those gathered here today that don't know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then they don't really understand the Heavenly Father principle. Um, the, the, the Bible says very clearly that there's only one mediator, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on Calvary. And so I pray today, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that you would do that work within them, to draw them, to transform them, to show them their need of a Savior, to cause them to turn from their sin to the Savior. Lord, in the New Testament, there was a man who just basically cried out. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a valid prayer when it comes from a sincere heart. God will save you even today. And for believers, I just pray that we would apply this to our hearts, to our families, and to our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.